Hi, this is James. Before I get started, you might like to know that the In-Situ Science Podcast is now officially one year old. Thank you so much for listening. We're still developing and improving with every episode. So feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook if there's something or someone you'd like to see on the podcast. Also, I'd like to announce that In-Situ Science will be doing a live podcast recording as part of the Sydney Science Festival in August this year. I'll have a panel of scientists on stage talking about all things science, and it'll be recorded live at the Camelot Lounge in Sydney. The event is called Life vs. Science. You can buy tickets online. It's a measly $5 to get in, so buy tickets quickly before they run out. It's on the 16th of August. Check out the events page on InSituScience.com for more information. Thanks again for listening over the past year, and I hope you enjoy all the episodes yet to come. Welcome back. You're listening to InSitu Science, where each episode we get to know a different scientist and hear their stories about why they do what they do. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by physiologist and vertebrate zoologist, Philip Withers. Phil, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, James. Now, you are one of those scientists, I think, that are very hard to pigeonhole. Usually when I look up a scientist's profile, you kind of go, oh yeah, they work on this type of behavior in bees, or they work on this thing, or I was looking up your profile, and you've done pretty much everything. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I think my general interest really is metabolic thermal physiology and measuring things and doing stuff with equipment and computers. But you've so also got things on aerodynamics of bird wings, technical specifications of flow-through respirometry systems, water balance in ostriches, buoyancy regulation in sharks, cocoon yeah. formation in desert frogs, everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm very undisciplined okay. with what I get involved <laughs> with, but I, I think I'm basically a comparative animal physiologist, yeah. and I just grab onto things that just seem interesting and especially things I don't know a lot about mm. because that's how you learn really about stuff is when you try and do things. Mm. Often things seem like, oh, that's really easy and then you try and do it and then you go, oh, this is tricky. <laughs> so is there much of a, a plan to fit in all these diverse systems and questions or just things pop up when you're I, in the field? No, I, th- I think that my general plan is that I do... Vertebrate animal, terrestrial vertebrate animals, mm-hmm. arid, semi-arid environments, with yeah. e- ecological, physiological adaptations, and yeah. that sort of drives itself as you're doing field work. You think of things, mm. but especially with honors students or you know, little projects pop up, and you go, "Oh, that's really interesting. I'll, I'll do that to learn something about it." So they're completely unrelated to any yeah. general plan. So your main thing is looking at metabolic <clears throat> rate. The physiology for a non-scientist, we're talking about metabolism, what, what is this? Well, metabolism is actually quite tricky to define. Okay. I mean, to a biochemist, it's 9,000 different metabolic <laughs> pathways on a chart. Yeah. Uh, to a physiologist, it's basically heat production. Okay. So that's, that's the real fundamental measure of metabolism is is metabolic heat production. Mm. But it's a very hard thing to measure. So we usually use proxies like oxygen consumption rate. Okay. Or even carbon dioxide production rate. Mm. Um, and there's a pretty strict relationship between the two. Mm. And so this but, is measuring sort of how fast animal cells are doing things and this is generating how, heat? How, or? Well, for me, it's how much the whole animal is doing things because that's, that's their exchange with the environment. Mm. What goes on in the animal can sometimes be a little bit different. Mm. But, yeah, it's basically how much oxygen an animal might use yeah. per gram per hour mm-hmm. um, at, a, at this temperature or that temperature or in an arid environment or a tropical environment. 
So this might be a naive question, but why should it differ between animals? Why aren't all animals just trudging along at a single no, clock? That's, that's a that's a really interesting question because for a long time, for example, physiologists were just focused on this graph of log body mass on the x-axis, log metabolic rate on the y-axis, and so the bigger you are, and, and what's the slope yeah. of the line. And we ignored the variation around the line for All a long, right. long time. And that's what now is interesting a lot of people. Because mm-hmm. at, at a given body weight, a mammal, different species, can vary by 10 times in mm-hmm. basal metabolic rates. And then that's, well, why is that? It's exactly your question. Mm-hmm. It's adaptations to the environment. Sometimes it's phylogenetic inertia mm-hmm. from their past history. Um, there's various reasons, but it usually comes down to environment, temperature, rainfall, food availability, that sure. sort of thing. And so you said you're working on desert and arid fauna. Do they have particular adaptations to deal with these environments in that sense? Well, it, it's one of the deserts are one of those extreme environments. Mm-hmm. And I, I started off in the University of Adelaide in South Australia, pretty semi-arid. Mm-hmm. Then I did my PhD in North America in the West Coast, arid, um, and I did a postdoc in Cape Town, arid. So okay. I've always sort of worked in arid environments, mm-hmm. um, and I've just latched onto that as an extreme environment, because mm-hmm. that's often where you find out how, how systems really work, is when it's pushed to some limit. Mm-hmm. You could do it equally well in the Arctic, to cold environments, that's yeah. another stress or high altitude, but uh, arid is just sort of what I started off in and I've just stuck to. So is your interest in it about the animals then or do you just love arid environments? How, do, how did you start this field oh, of research? Both. Yeah. Both. I mean, I, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was going to be a mathematical physicist. And oh, really? Did, did biology as a fill-in subject. <laughs> oh, animals are just so interesting. They're yeah. really cool. They do amazing things. Mm. Um, and I just essentially became a biologist then mm. from first year uni. I just That's what I was interested in. Well, I'm probably no surprise then you ended up in this field because there's, this is essentially a physics question in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways it is, yes. Mm. And there's also a lot of equipment, you know, computers and analyzers <laughs> and hooking them together and recording stuff. So there's mm. sort of that, that sort of background of physics and mathematics for programming and, mm. and whatever. So. so there is a conscious decision at some point that you're switching to biology? I think really, yeah, early on as an undergraduate, it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, this is so much fun doing this. It's much more interesting than matrix algebra or whatever. Um, <laughs> and there is so. that sort of you know, the tinker aspect of it as well. And we were talking yeah. the other day about hooking up, what, car refrigerators and stuff to get humidifiers <laughs> right or something like that, right? Oh, yeah, there's, <laughs> the, yeah, and doing sort of general physiology stuff, there's always that opportunity for tinkering, even making metabolic changes. It's like, oh, I've got to find these brass fittings to screw in the lid and mm-hmm. um, through to, yeah, if you want to have a controlled humidity at a certain temperature, the easiest way to do it is have a water bubbler mm-hmm. in a water bath at a known temperature, mm-hmm. and that will let you generate any humidity you want at any other temperature. All right. So that's a pretty basic way to do it, but um, well, if it, it works. works. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So these metabolic chambers are essentially boxes you put animals in. 
Yeah, there's essentially to measure a, stuff. <laughs> a steel box, except you obviously have a port that you blow air in at a mm. low flow rate and the air comes out yeah. and you analyse the gases, oxygen, CO2, water mm. in the air that comes out. So it's in theory a really simple design. Mm. In practice, though. In, in practice, there, there, there are a lot of intricacies. Just just the formulas you have to use yeah. to even calculate oxygen consumption. But they're actually quite complex. Okay. Um, they're pretty standard now. Mm. But you know, knowing what time you put your cha- animal in the chamber, if they're nocturnal, do you put you measure them through the day to get basils? But you can't just put them in at twelve o'clock and take them out at one o'clock. Mm. Um, it's it's quite tricky doing it properly. Yeah, you mentioned how important it is to work on things that are in extremes, and one of the the sort of outliers that I guess you work on is probably one of my favourite animals, which is the thorny devil. Mm-hmm. And you've looked at uh, how they drink and manage their water intake and physiology. Tell us about the thorny devil. It seems to have really bizarre physiology. It really is, a, well, strange-looking lizard for a start. It's yep. it's really <laughs> spiky, and it's got this hump on its neck with two spikes mm. on it, the, the nuchal um, hump. And, um, so they're really weird-looking lizards. Mm. And they're interesting because they only eat ants, yep. certain certain size of ant, not particularly a certain genus or anything. But right. um, they're really specialised. And that was m- one of my interests is they, they have such a strict diet we know exactly what they eat. We know we what we know what goes in, so we should be able to figure out what's going out and how. Like what, mm-hmm. how much energy is used for metabolism? How much is used for just fecal waste? Um, okay, that was actually my interest was to try and measure field metabolic rates and water losses in thorny devils. Mm-hmm. Because if we know one thing, digestibility, we should be able to calculate the water turnover rate, their energy turnover rate, because we know exactly what their diet is. And if you know how much the, the ant they digest, mm-hmm. you should be able to physically work everything out. So the, the real question for me at the start was, can we do it? Is, it, that, is it as simple as it sounds? <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it basically was. I mean, oh, good. Um, we did the doubly labelled water stuff. We got water turnover rates, metabolic rates, mm-hmm. and the ratios of them were pretty much exactly what you would have predicted from the diet. Oh, okay. So it's a new, unique situation where your animal is only eating one kind of thing. If you mm. wanted to do this on a regular other desert lizard, it's like, well, are they eating caterpillars or mm. or ants or termites or... Whatever you don't know what their diet is, so you can't calculate yep. how things should be working. So, am I right so in understanding they have really low metabolic rates? They are pretty low. Okay. Um, I mean, a lot of desert animals are low, okay. but thorny devils aren't particularly worried about thermoregulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have fairly low body temperatures in the field. They're not very active. Mm. Um, they're not metabolic giants. And they Is this because ants sprint. are just not very good energy sources? or I think that's probably right. They're not very digestible. They have a lot of chitin mm. in their exoskeleton, which they can't digest at all. Mm. And a fair amount of just the total energy in an ant is in its exoskeleton. Mm. Um, of course, small things have a big surface to volume, so there's, there's lots of exoskeleton relative to the inside stuff yeah. that they can digest. So, yeah, I, I think it's not a particularly digestible diet. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of ants don't have a lot of water in them. 
Mm. Um, so they're also a bit water limited, which is possibly why they're into this weird drinking mechanism. Yes, tell us about this weird <laughs> drinking mechanism. <laughs> ah, it, it is weird. It's it's been known for a fair while. Mm. Basically, a thorny devil. If you stand it in a puddle of water, its skin is described as blotting paper. It sucks by capillarity the water up. It covers the entire body surface. Mm-hmm. And the water just moves all the way over the body, up to its head, up to its mouth. And then they sit there and they move their jaws and they drink the water out of their skin. Mm-hmm. So they never stick their head in the water and lap at it or suck it, yeah. as other reptiles do. And it's not drinking through its skin, its skin's bringing no, water to its face. early experiment someone did, they put a blue dye in the water. Okay. So if it was being just absorbed through the skin, the dye wouldn't go through, so the water inside the animal would be just pure water. Whereas if they're drinking it, they'll ingest the dye. Well, they let the animal drink this for a while, then Mm. looked at what was in its stomach, and the blue dye was there. So it was pretty clear that they physically drank through the mouth. So is this something that you can see? Can you see water covering its body? You can. If If you just put them in the water, you can just see this water front moving mm. by capillarity up the body, <laughs> over the back, up towards the head. Um, and you didn't so dye the water and get technicolored lizards or anything? Well, when we were doing some experiments <laughs> on the, the the rate of spread of water, we, we did use red-blue dyed water to put a little drop on the lizard. Mm. And with high-speed photography, we just then photograph the spread of the water and then we go frame by frame and look at things like the velocity. Does the water droplet preferentially go to the head? But you might think it does because that's where the lizard wants it to go. Mm. But no, it just goes every direction okay. in a uniform rate. Yeah. So it's just this overall mass flow up the body that eventually gets to the head. How, how fast are we talking here? How does it? Oh, you put it in the water, it might take 30 seconds to a minute for it to work its way all the way up to its head. That's pretty good, it's, I guess, for sort of passive oh, yeah. capillary action. It's it's yeah, it is it is yeah. passive though. It's just and a physical thing of water getting drawn into small channels, right? Yeah, and yeah. they are pretty small channels, so it does go fairly fast up the mm. channels because they're fairly small diameters. But well, so, why do you think they've evolved such a roundabout way of drinking? Well, this. Sort of two two thoughts come to me. One is they're so specialised for eating ants mm. that I don't know if they could stick their head in water and lap it up and drink it anyway. I mean, they have a tiny mouth and their tongue small and specialised, you know, this little adhesive end to, okay, to pick up yeah. ants. And there's also another lizard in northwestern US, the... the um, Western horned lizards, there's a few species, but mm. they are incredibly convergent. They're also really specialised eating ants, and okay. they also use their skin to collect water to drink. So two really specialised ant eaters All right. have the same drinking pattern. So These two things have evolved completely separately, but completely come to the same strategy. Yep. So okay. I, th- that's one thought, that it's related to, well, they just can't drink anyway. Mm. Um, the other thing is, at least my experience is where thorny devils live, it's quite sandy, it mm. rains. You don't get rain puddles sitting around for days so they can drink. Mm. You get wet surface sand. 
So my other thought is, well, they might be able to suck the water out of the sand. Okay. And drink it out of their skin. Mm. And I'm beginning to think that, that they can do that. It's, it's not quite proven yet. But mm. We do know that if you stand a thorny devil on moist sand, it sucks a bit of water out, but not enough to fill its capillary system and not enough to drink. Mm. But thorny devils seem to burrow down in the, the wet sand and shovel it on their back, okay. um, which would really facilitate water coming out of the moist sand into the capillary channel so they can drink. Mm. So it might be they have this weird skin-drinking behaviour related to getting water out of moist sand, okay. not a puddle. And so they observed any behaviours like that in the North American lizards? No, or? they actually seem to be a bit different. All they right. If it rains, they have a really stereotypic posture they go into. They sort of stick their back end, their tail end up in the air. And it seems to collect the water and run it down to their head, which is down <laughs> at a lower sort of level. And then they drink the water that way. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a bit like Nama Desert beetles. When they climb up on top of the sand dune when it's foggy, the water condenses uh, okay. on the back end that they stick up and the water drops run down to their head and they drink it. <laughs> so th- there do seem to be some differences between thorny devils and horn lizards mm. um, in that. Now, there's very few people that have ever worked on thorny devils. Is this just because they're weird and we don't know what to make of them? Or One of the problems is getting them if you want to work on them. <laughs> Which mean, is hard to find. The, the, the reason I really started playing with them was they were on a pit trapping study site mm. that some of us had going in the goldfields in Western mm-hmm. Australia, and there were thorny devils all over the place. So it was quite easy to to collect some, uh, to observe them in the wild, mm-hmm. put radio trackers on them and follow them around and do all of that sort of yeah. stuff, because that's what you have to do to do the W-labeled water studies. You have to inject them with isotopic water, mm-hmm. wait a while, take a blood sample, okay. as in a, a week or so later. Yeah. Um, but I just happened to be in a study site where it was easy to work on them. Okay. And they are not easy to just find. <laughs> if you just want to go out and find a thorny devil, it's, it's mm. quite difficult. There's, there's got to be something alluring about working on such a bizarre, unique, hard-to-find animal. Or is that just yeah. me? That there's like no, a, no, it, there's it a really, challenge. It really is cool. There, yeah. is, there is that challenge <laughs> to, to get them, but even when that turns out to be fairly easy, it's still this challenge to, to figure out how a really special animal works. Mm. Um, I mean, people are really interested in the iconic things. Yeah. And you try and do something on an iconic thing and you're under the scrutiny. It's like, oh, well, you didn't do that right. You stuffed up that thorny devil study. <laughs> <laughs> it tends to get noticed a bit more. Right? Really? <laughs> yeah. well, but it's important to look on or to study things that don't fit our preconceived notions of things. You know, if people just studied yeah. model species... Mm-hmm. We'd have never moved beyond lab rats and fruit flies or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so do you find so, yourself working more on the outliers? Sometimes when the opportunity arises. Mm. So like that just sort of worked for thorny devils because they were there. Mm. Another really fun thing I worked on was um, golden moles in the Namib Desert. But again, that was just really iconic animals. But it turned out people have figured out really easily how to catch them. So you okay. can go and do field biology. Yeah. 
tried to do the same thing on marsupial moles, and that was a real struggle getting a marsupial <laughs> mole to study, but we did. Um, oh, you go on. So, yeah. So I, iconic things like that. It's fun to try and do, but you don't want it to be your mainstream bread and butter. Well, I was going to ask you, how, do you ever, you know, try to fund this research on things that pop up sporadically, or it is just they are just byproducts of larger projects you're doing? For me, they've been largely byproducts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, nowadays we have crowdfunding, and you, you could probably do sort of exotic studies that way. Mm. But at the moment, I'm sort of focused on a bigger program with marsupials and parrots. That's mm. really my research time now. So that, so that's sort of a mainstream thing that's been going through my research history. Okay. So the project time. you're working on now, this is yeah. the marsupials and parrots. What are you looking at? Basically, we're looking at evaporative water loss mm-hmm. from a mammal and a bird that have almost certainly independently evolved endothermy. Okay. And their water loss is essentially two components. There's what we call insensible water loss, Mm -hmm. which is just the evaporative water loss that just happens because we have skin and it's in contact with dryish air and Mm -hmm. evaporation, as opposed to... um, sensible water loss and thermoregulatory water loss when you're heat stressed, so you sweat or you're pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're interested in this insensible water loss. It's just sort of this basic evaporation that happens. And everyone's thought it was just biophysically passive. It just mm-hmm. happens. Um, but we found now in a few mammals and a bird that they can actually regulate their insensible water loss so that, for example, in dry air, their water loss isn't as high as you think it would be mm-hmm. compared to what it's like when they're in quite moist air. Mm-hmm. So we're we're trying to sort out now how much they can regulate this insensible water loss and why. Is it water conservation or is it just related to water balance relates to heat balance? And mammals okay. and birds are incredibly good at thermoregulation. So it's not necessarily because they're in arid environments? No, it could just be, for example, if you're in dry air, you evaporate more. That means Mm. you're losing more heat. So if you're an endotherm, you should have to produce more heat. All right. So you're conserving energy by... Just because you're in dry air. Is that because water has high heat retention? Or is my physics wrong? (laughs) No, you're close. Water's got what we call a very high latent heat of evaporation. So if you evaporate a gram of water, you dissipate a lot of energy. All right. um, Like 2.4 kilojoules Mm -hmm. per gram of energy. So that's why when we want to keep cool, evaporation is a fantastic way to do that. You dissipate a lot of heat with not a lot of water. Yeah, so the sweat so, evaporating off your skin. Yes. Sort of thing. Yep. So if you're if you're not heat stressed, you're in a comfy environment that suddenly gets dry and your water loss goes up. Mm. Well your heat loss goes up. So that could perturb your whole thermoregulatory mm-hmm. system. So how are they regulating this? Is this them just not obeying the laws that's, of physics? That's no, no animals <laughs> have to obey the laws of physics. They they can tweak the edges, mm. but that's the interesting thing about animals. Really, is they they have to conform to basic physical chemical laws. Mm. So no, they can't violate laws. So no, they have to be 
have to be working with the constraints of what's physically possible. Mm-hmm. Um, there are various ways they can do it. Some of our water loss is cutaneous across our skin. Some mm-hmm. is respiratory. So you could potentially have two different mechanisms going on. Um, and we know endotherms can really fine-tune their respiratory water loss mm-hmm. uh, with nasal countercurrent heat exchange, for example. I mean, most real animals don't expire air that's at their body temperature, which is what it is at when it's inside. Mm-hmm. You breathe the air out through their nasal passages and cool it. So some kangaroo rats, for example, are air conditioners. They breathe out air that's colder than they breathe in. Is that why they have long noses? Is well, that's why they have yeah, oh, long wow. noses. Are very, very <laughs> complex, structured, um, sort of highly folded. So there's lots of surface area in there. All right, and, and so same the, with birds. Yeah. So the capillaries in their nose, they would they're, reabsorb. They're not. They're not so much or, capillaries. They're just highly folded channels. But okay. The idea is when they breathe in. They evaporate water as they heat the air up to body temperature mm-hmm. and saturation, and that cools the nasal passages. Then they expire and they blow the warm, moist air back through these cold surfaces, mm. these cold surfaces, and that condenses the water. Which, when they breathe in again the next time, is partly the water that they use to resaturate <laughs> that breath. Yeah. So it's a really quite neat. Physical yeah. exchange system, just requiring lots of surface area. Yeah. Really. All right, that's a bit funny. I mean, hearing you talk about how animals are hanging on to water or gathering water, are there sort of biotechnology implications for this sort of stuff? There are. In fact, I had a German PhD student come over and do some thorny devil work, and he was really coming from an area of of biotechnology being used for, for example, harvesting water. Okay. Lots of environments are actually quite foggy, mm. for example. So, you know, people have thought about how, how can we condense and, and, and harvest this water that's, mm. that's in the air anyway. Yeah. So he, he came from sort of this background. Thorny devils were a logical thing to look at, mm-hmm. uh, which is why he came over to work on them with me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there is this background sort of potential development of concepts mm. from animals for making biophysically designed structures for things like water harvesting. So we're looking for inspiration from something like a thorny devil as yes. to how we can passively get fog and turn it into water? Is that, is yeah, that right? Basically. Yeah, basically. Mm. Uh, I mean, people have been trying to make Surfaces that collect fog, mm. which is not hard to do because it just condenses anyway. Mm. But then you have to somehow channel it into somewhere where you can collect it. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, capillary structures and the actual shapes and the, the dimensions mm. can all sort of dictate how effectively you could extract water from okay. a, a plastic sheet. So do you know if you find out anything from the Thorny Devils about Manufacturing something that could do the same job or uh, early days yet? I think it's really early days yet. Okay. Um, mm. and that's, yeah, I mean, that's really not where I 
see my stuff going. So I was pretty peripheral <laughs> to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Philip, the PhD student, went back to Germany with some ideas about how you might make certain channels. So for example, Thorny Devil's channels, there's really a surface channel that goes into a subsurface channel. And it seems to be the subsurface channel that really distributes the water mm. better than this surface it's like a groove, really, that just mm. directs the water down into the subsurface channel. Okay. But that gets to be pretty complex to to make. Um, so whether you can actually make... Yeah, well, these are nanoscale like things, right? It's not like we yeah. can see them with our eyes. No. Yeah. Um, but something like that might um, facilitate water transport. And then, of course, it doesn't evaporate off quite so quickly when the humidity drops. And it's not condensing. Mm, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm always con- intrigued as to how you go from a natural history observation to a biotechnology product, and and <clears throat> how much of it is just getting inspiration and and how fruitful those avenues are. I think another side of it as well is you can't just be the biologist that works on interesting things and then you think, oh, I can develop it. You need, you, you probably need more to be the person at the other end going, I need to make a structure to collect fog. Mm. How can I do that? And then you look at maybe biological models. Mm. Or maybe you need one person at each end that talks to one another. Well, yeah, I think we're definitely on the other end of the spectrum where we start with the animals and Yes. Sometimes yeah. just stop there, even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, as a basic biologist, I'm I'm interested in how animals work, not how we can mm. develop that to making things for us. Yeah. yeah. Is it frustrating having to try and justify what you do by appealing to the applied side of things? It, it is a bit, mm. because ultimately you really want to do it just because it's interesting. Yeah. It seems like fun and someone should know how this works. Yeah. So yeah, it always is a bit um, frustrating to have to justify your research just on the goodness for humankind. And it's strange. And most biologists I talk to are you know, of that opinion. They recognize that what they do can have all sorts of important applications, but that's not really what motivates them. No, and I think you used to be a lot more comfortable in, in academia mm. when we did research and we did teaching, but you could, you could always argue, oh, I, I do all this teaching, I'm good at it, and that's, that's how I justify my existence. And, mm. you know, the research I do on the side is just a bonus mm. for everybody. But that's not quite how it works so much anymore. Mm. Um, we've got much more pressure on research and funding and, and all of that stuff. Mm. And there's now a lot more sort of s- scrutiny on how you spend your time. And you yeah. can't, you can't just be a, a good teacher and teach. Mm. But I mean, all the research you're doing will have probably really important applications just, I don't know, 50 years from now. Some of it will. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you, you look back, um, 
at some of the things people were doing that no one would ever have thought that something important mm. and useful would have come out. And it has. Mm. But there's also an awful lot of stuff that's happened that that's never happened with. Um, but there's also an awful lot of stuff that's, you know, it's important research and you throw buckets of money in mm. and nothing ever comes out either. Yeah. So there's always a bit of almost serendipity in what yeah. you're doing. Is it really going to turn out to be something important? Mm. And some things do and some things don't. Probably just very important then to know that we should be funding this very exploratory research and be happy with the fact that sometimes it doesn't return on the investment, at least in the way that we might hope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But also nowadays, I think there's also a lot more value in basic research for conservation. Mm -hmm. I mean, conservation is becoming a really critical issue. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that if you need to conserve numbats or something, you need to know as much about every aspect of how numbats work Mm -hmm. to really focus on how you conserve them. Mm -hmm. So physiological conservation is becoming a a much more popular area nowadays because mm-hmm. people are recognising we ha- the animals have to live. Um, you put a number <laughs> somewhere in the bush, they've, <laughs> they've got to they've got to have their energy balance sorted out, their water balance sorted out. Mm-hmm. You know, re- reproduction is sort of obviously what has to happen to mm-hmm. increase and sustain the population. But if the animal can't basically survive, then none of that other stuff is going to happen. So the kind of information you're getting able to be applied to, say, climate projections? Yeah. In fact, basic thermal metabolic physiology is starting to become really important in looking or predicting effects of climate change Mm. on basically whether animals are going to survive or not. Yeah. Uh, You know, if temperatures are going up, what's that going to do to their physiology? Their water requirements are going to increase. Their energy requirements may well increase. So, um, so, and we need that basic physiological data to mm. plug into models um, to see what might happen mm. if the temperature goes up three degrees. Is it and is so, it looking like it will have a huge impact, or is it is that another early days question? It's sort of early <laughs> days, but. Yeah, you know, we're often asked for where do we find physiological data on pangolins because we worry about what's <laughs> going to happen with pangolins. Well, no one's done it on pangolins, but this is probably a good model. Mm. Um, so, yeah, these people that are doing climate change modelling are, are out there asking for data. Okay. Often for animals we haven't ever measured because they're rare and endangered in the first place, <laughs> so you often don't do it. So you have to find some likely analogue mm. to say, well, you know, use this parrot as a substitute for ground parrots. Mm. Um, this will tell you probably what's going on. Or but if something is bizarre as a pangolin, surely it's going to be difficult to find analogues for that? Oh, but for example, the dietary specialists on ants and termites. So if you understand, <laughs> I mean... Thorny devils, we've worked on numbats, which are also sort of termitivorous. Mm. Um, diet tells you a lot about an animal's water and energy requirements. Mm. It, it comes back to what I was talking about before with thorny devils. They have such a specialised diet. You can tell from what goes in what, what's going to happen. 
Mm. Um, so pangolins being anteaters, we, we can predict how many ants they're probably going to have to eat um, to maintain water and energy balance. So then an ecologist can go, well, if they're going to eat that many ants a day, we need this many ants in the environment and we need these species because they're the ones they feed mm. on. So, But given the chance yeah. to work on pangolins, I'm sure you'd... Oh, Jump I in. would love to work on pangolins, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, if there's anyone listening that can help fill out with some pangolins, <clears throat> get in touch. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yes. But I should probably let you go and get back to putting things in boxes and whatnot. Yes. <laughs> All right, so if people want to find out more about your research, they should just check out the University of Western Australia. That's right, just do a directory search and yep. find my email and bit of a web page. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Phil. Okay. It's a pleasure. Thank you. No worries. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to hear more podcasts on any good podcast app. Also, check out our brand new Facebook page and in situ science.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>